Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Investigative Economics Podcast. I'm your host, Llewellyn Jones. Today's episode is all things uh, financial crisis. Uh, it's an episode that's been long in the making. Uh, there's a lot of stories on the Investigative Economics uh, site that are about the financial crisis going back for a few years now. Yeah, I've been meaning to cover the subject for a while, but it's a lot to take on. It's, uh, I was even thinking, even before covering the stories that are on Investigative Economics, just to summarize all the things that happened during the financial crisis. Uh, I mean, you know, the top line ones that everybody sort of knows about at this point, you know, there's been enough books and documentaries and stories about it that everybody kind of understands about, oh, there are these things called mortgage-backed securities, and then there's the credit default swaps, and, you know, the tranches that people invest in, you don't buy the full security, and the, the credit default swaps that are that cover them, and the collateralized debt obligations that sort of, you know, package and repackage and resell and the whole uh, the whole domino effect that happened and how it affected every other aspect of the economy at the time all the companies that went down like AIG and all the banks that uh, fell into bankruptcy you know sort of the musical chairs effect that happened that uh, when you know the economy collapses and everybody, has is exposed to about what they have and it exposes all the other uh, faults fault lines in in the economy as many other as what happens in financial crisis in the in the past like uh, look back to the 1929 crash and that everybody talks about like oh it's just you know is the stock market collapse but it, there are a lot of other things that happened at the same time you know like there at that time there was a uh, crash in the Florida real estate market uh, uh, nobody really talks about that one, but you know, there's uh, the Matchstick Company that collapsed. There's uh, Citibank's uh, investment in foreign bonds. Uh, there's uh, like a million things that happen when there's a, a large-scale financial uh, collapse. And you know, I, I haven't even touched on a whole bunch of other things. There's LIBOR. There's the international markets. You know, getting to like Greece and Portugal and all those guys that were uh, you know the credit crunch that happens when uh, not just one economy, but m- multiple economies uh, collapse. And to even sort of unwind all of that, just to sort of go on the base, you know, the baseline of what people, the common sense understanding of what happened is a lot. But in this episode, we're going to sort of be um, poking some holes in that narrative that that I don't think the what has been described as what happened is a full picture. And there you'll find there there's this is some of these things have been written about in, in various places, but maybe the a couple examples to to show that like no, it's not exactly as it described as and that is the sort of story of that well, US housing was massively overvalued. Uh, it had been going up and up for years, and everybody just assumed that housing prices would always go up. They would never go down. But then suddenly they went down because it was a bubble. Uh, they were all overvalued. Uh, people were just using them as uh, you know trading cards, not really realizing it, the underlying value. They're building houses where people didn't need them. And once people real somebody realized that, somebody exposed it, sort of realized what was happening, the bottom fell out. But what's a pretty uh, easy one to look up is that the the graph of housing prices, um, which had been going up and collapsed during the financial crisis, 
is back where it was, uh, as if nothing happened, as if there was, the financial crisis was just this sudden, brief pause, and things are back to where they were. And, and that's where uh, we get into the investigative economic story, is that, that the reason housing prices go up, had been going up, and, and are currently going up again, is not because of uh, you know, this massive bubble that's happening. It's, it's a remnant of inflation, like the price of everything that goes up uh, year over year, just a little bit, just to serve the, there's more money in the economy um, from all the various reasons that uh, prices of things go up and up on a steady basis. And once you adjust uh, housing prices, the, the total housing market, you know, sort of the housing indexes, there's a few different way, you know, measures of housing market. You know, um, is it the BLS that has the, <clears throat> the measure of just sort of total housing stock, um, uh, or it might be that's probably census uh, census data. Um, there's a number of housing indexes, uh, but they're all kind of go the same way. That's you know this steady rise. But if you uh, adjust that that value for inflation, you know fix it to twenty twenty three dollars, it really hasn't changed much. It's pretty just pretty much flat. So. I mean, that whole that whole narrative that uh, the housing market, you know, housing was just incredibly overvalued. And certainly there was, you know, there's always some housing that's overvalued. And there probably were, I remember some of the small stories about, you know, like, oh, there's this town in Florida, again, Florida, uh, where just there's all these houses built and nobody's living in them. And there's a number of those stories like uh, places across the country that they people were just, uh, you know, building these subdivisions, assuming people would keep moving out or maybe they weren't even assuming people would move in there. Just sort of saying that like, if you build a house, it has X value, even if somebody doesn't buy it. And that, uh, and we'll, I'll get in, there's a, there's another story that we'll get into about that, about like how that sort of, uh, that, you know, that shell game that was played with that, with some of the housing market, but uh, whether that was actually the cause of the uh, housing market crash overall, uh, doesn't seem likely. That is, there might be these places that where you know housing's you know built and nobody's living in it. It's a you know road to nowhere. But was that across the whole economy? I mean, you know, people still need houses. Uh, I mean, one thing you'll notice, and in, in all of this, is that there's obviously a shift from suburban and exurban development into urban development, as you know, uh, cities across the country are, are, there's more investment going on there. And that's sort of like a, another sub story that's happening there, but um, but the idea that you know all housing across the United States was you know you know one tenth its value or one half its value even uh, just isn't true. That you know uh, the values the values have gone up quite a bit in a lot of cities. Certain cities, not so much. Um, you know, I, I was Cleveland. Things are still pretty cheap. Baltimore. Philadelphia, but you know New York City and San Francisco are massively expensive. DC's pretty expensive. Los Angeles is expensive, um, and there's a lot of you could go into a lot of reasons about why that is, like a lot of where the jobs are and uh, you know where where capital is being invested. But getting back to like sort of uh, you know what else was going on uh, during the uh, to if that wasn't the cause of the uh, the housing crisis, what was? So you know what's a pretty o- another obvious one to sort of poke a hole in the uh, 
in the balloon of uh, the theories is that, well, yes, there was a, a, a hot housing market in 2004 to 2006 uh, before that. That it seems to be quite true. And that was because uh, interest rates were low. And this is a, you know, kind of an obvious thing in economics is that inter interest rates control uh, the investment all over the place. And it's the, the major lever that the Federal Reserve has to sort of control the economy um, uh, along with a couple other ones. And that, that when they started ri uh, in increasing uh, interest rates around 2006, uh, that would obviously lead to a, a, a credit crunch uh, on investment and particularly real estate. You know, uh, you know, you don't have to really get too far into how this all works to understand. It's just that, um, you know, interest rates that you pay on a mortgage are directly tied into uh, the federal funds rate, the, 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 the amount, the interest rate that banks borrow from the Federal Reserve. That, that, that's how much they have to pay to the Federal Reserve, and they pass that cost on to you. And if you have an uh, interest-only loan or a subprime loan, well, that's very much more affected by uh, rising interest rates than anything else. And if, you know, the, if for that theory that, um, uh, that you know, the, the, the banks and the mortgage industry countrywide and all these folks were just borrowing money to build housing that nobody was going to live in. Well, they, if, if that is a true narrative, we'll, we'll sort of question some of that uh, later on, is that, uh, that that is highly dependent on there being low interest rates because it cuts into their margins if they, if, uh, you know, they have to borrow at a higher rate, they have to pay a lot more money. That's uh, any time that they're, they're not getting that money back by selling the house or, you know, or renting it or something like that. They're having to pay that additional interest rate to uh, to the banks that they borrowed from, uh, who then borrowed from the Federal Reserve. So, I mean, that's just uh, that's just like an obvious thing. And like recessions are when interest rates go up, um, you know, and and bubbles get formed when uh, you know capital is cheap. Uh, this is you know getting to Minsky's uh, theories on you know uh, sort of Ponzi lending that sort of thing when you know. That when capital is too easy to borrow, people invest in things that are stupid, and uh, they pay the price on it later on. But that's just something that just wasn't mentioned during the financial crisis. That uh, that interest rates went up. That the Federal Reserve um, was kind of responsible for that. I mean, that not that that's necessarily a bad thing. Maybe they had to uh, increase interest rates. I don't know. I, I'm not uh, putting necessarily a, a blame or uh, anything like that on it, but it, to understand what was going on, yes, interest rates are at the heart of it. And uh, for the folks that were at the time, there was some talk about interest rates. In particular, uh, Alan Greenspan would say that, oh, no, it's not. It, the interest rates are not tied to uh, mortgage rates. That's, that's not true whatsoever, uh, but that they become decoupled some years ago. Uh, and it was actually, um, what did he say? It was international, uh, international trends, international markets were the true culprit uh, that affected long-term interest rates. Sort of this like nebulous, like it's, it's countries, it's Europe, I don't know, yeah, they're doing funny things with money. And, but that's not true if you look at the numbers that, uh, that, that 
that mortgage rates and interest rates were still pretty much tied at the hip, um, as they always have been. And that, uh, and really, it's um, long-term interest rates had been decoupled. It was, it was opposite from what he said. And this was something he said in an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. Um, and that, uh, that the federal funds rate is substantially correlated with mortgage rate, uh, a Pearson correlation for 82, uh, which is substantial. Um, Although after 2008, this is all, that's all before the financial crisis, uh, that, uh, the, that the, the federal funds rate would decouple from the mortgage rates. And I think that's only in the few years after the financial crisis. Uh, this, uh, I wonder in most recent years, this, this story is from a few years ago, and it might need to be updated to, to sort of in, include all that information. Um, and, you know, and again, yeah, just all those adjustable interest rate mortgages are pegged to federal interest rates. Uh, some are pegged to LIBOR, the London Interbank Offered Rate, and that's a whole other uh, thing by itself. That um, that certain loans are connected to that LIBOR rate, and I think that's usually when it's like international funding that's happening, and uh, that. And that there's been a million lawsuits about whether that LIBOR rate was being rigged, that uh, what banks would say, they would say when somebody calls them up and says, like, you know, what are you lending at? And they'd say, you know, well, a LIBOR is X and well, 2% plus LIBOR or something like that. And that they were lying about what LIBOR actually was because there's something funny about like – and this one I actually have not looked completely into. I remember we were, I was looking for a story into this, and it, it might still be worthwhile, even though it's been a while, is that there's, you know, there's been a million lawsuits accusing people of falsifying LIBOR, um, and therefore you know, this is not a reliable thing, and it's being abandoned in favor of this new uh, interest rate peg. Um, that, so that... Uh, so, which is a whole story within itself. But that one is not actually, those are not connected to the federal funds rate. Those are, those mortgages are different. Um, those would not be affected by federal funds uh, interest rate. So, so getting back to um, what's happening in, during the financial crisis, this is, we're going to chop this up because this is going to be this might be like a 10 part series or something like that, because this is that's just sort of the intro of. Well, what caused the housing market was not what they said it was. The cause is something else. It's going to be interest rates. Why they really raised interest rates. There's a little you know question there. But um, it wasn't just that the value of American housing was you know, uh, worthless. And but that leads to a bunch of other different things that would happen. And we'll give you a little preview about like some of those that we've had a number of stories on that. Is, and that is like the question about the whole issue of whether it's subprime was at the heart of it all that um, the TARP program. I'm just going to give a preview of this. We're going to get into this in a lot more detail. A lot of the TARP beneficiaries were not subprime borrowers. That this whole idea that, oh, these people who are you know, fooled into taking you know these subprime loans, uh, that were their interest rates are going to be jacked up and they're going to be paying millions of dollars, that they need to be bailed out, and that 
they were going to be bailed out through the, the government's TARP program, but most of the beneficiaries of that were not subprime. And there's a lot of details that, about like who was the recipients of that were very, that's very suspicious, uh, is selective almost. Cut myself off there. We'll talk about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, about whether, you know, what they were in- investing in, because that's a whole uh, arm of the financial crisis that, you know, oh, the, this, these, the, the government, the GSEs, the, the, the partially private, partially government uh, entities that were just uh, investing in, in nothing, in anything. They didn't even know what they were investing in. Um, and they were investing in these, uh, the subprime lending. What, what, you know, why were they doing that? They were just like, weren't paying attention. And uh, but there's something funny about that because it's sort of like, well, a lot of those were like so a lot of those were alt a loans, you know, like home equity loans and things like that, where it's not necessarily uh, that it's not necessarily a risky loan or anything like that. We'll, we'll talk about that some more. Um, the uh, collateralized debt obligations uh, that th- those were considered to be so risky and so like such a you know, how, how could we let this happen, that this was the, um, we let down the Chinese wall during, um, through uh, the Graham-Leach-Bliley uh, Act, that uh, the Chinese wall that separates, that part that partially separated um, investment banking from commercial banking, and it allowed collateralized debt obligations to, uh, you know, flood the market, but, and that enabled the financial crisis. But, they have come back uh, in recent years, and uh, it, the market hasn't collapsed, uh, strangely enough. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about TARP funds, uh, that um, that there is a, it, how much they enabled uh, a lot of reg- regional bank mergers. I mean, the whole banking industry in general is like 10 stories by itself about what happened there. There's a lot of little individual stories about banks that, you know, they were heavily invested in mortgage-backed securities. And um, when that the, the rug got pulled on them, it just sort of exposed some corruption and things like that. But also one of the reasons why, you know, I was coming back to uh, writing, you know, doing a podcast on the financial crisis is there's been a number of people talking about um, – uh, the like community banking as a since the financial crisis that um, this was on the Bloomberg Odd, Odd Lots podcast about how you know there ha- there used to be a community bank there would be like a couple new community banks created every year uh, you know going back decades um, but since the financial crisis they there's been almost none I don't know if there's been one or something something minor might have happened. Um, that odd lots uh, episode is really interesting. Gets into a lot of the details there, but and there's a lot of mergers that happened as a result of the financial crisis. A lot of you know bankruptcies, uh, banks going bankrupt because uh, of uh, the, you know what happened to the the industry at the time. But um, and there's we'll get into the story about how uh, TARP funds uh, were played into those uh, the bank mergers that happened in the wake of it. Um, you know, yeah, Glass-Steagall again. You know, the the Chinese Wall, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act that enabled uh, collateralized uh, debt obligations. Um, 
we'll get into sort of like what how how contentious that was and it was like sort of like it was almost suspicious that it was like that was it just uh that happened just in the couple years before it i don't know tend to say if collateralized debt obligations are the riskiest thing in the world or they're okay i mean it's sort of like you know, a lot of times, you know, I like it's the podcast. I, I keep the the stories on the site are used as sort of like straight journalism. We kind of tend to theorize a little bit on the podcast because you know it's a little bit of an opportunity to sort of delve into and you know opinionize, give out my opinion about what exactly is happening, and and a lot of it may come across as a conspiracy theory or just a, a convoluted theory. Uh, but not because something is a convoluted theory or a different alternate theory doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. Um, I think I would consider say that there are good, you know, theories and bad theories. Um, and I don't know if collateralized debt obligations are necessarily bad. I don't know if they necessarily led to the collapse of uh, the economy, uh, as was completely described. Um, but we'll get into sort of like what that happened and, you know, what how that like sort of factored into the whole, uh, you know, the too big to fail narrative. We'll also talk about IndyMac. Um, I wrote about IndyMac, otherwise known as um, uh, OneWest, is the bank that um, uh, that Steve Mnuchin, the uh, previous uh, um, uh, head of the Federal Reserve uh, during Trump, uh, led. Uh, I've, I wrote a number of stories for Bloomberg BNA, about uh, IndyMac, uh, OneWest. Uh, I mean, that's that's a whole uh, set of stories by itself. It's just, it's fascinating. It was kind of a, you know, this bank that he took over, he renamed it, and he was accused of being a foreclosure machine. And California had a, a whole investigation that was going up against him, but uh, it got shelved. And, uh, and uh, just a million things within that even, there's a, a I, I'll talk about some of those Bloomberg stories too in this, but um, that there's a you know uh, there's a run on the bank uh, right before it got taken over that I don't think people know very much about uh, that uh, that uh, Senator Schumer was uh, sort of involved in. Um, we'll get into the details of that. Um, uh, we'll talk a little. There's another story about Fannie Mae and Freddie Freddie Mac about the, the, the refinancing loans. I, I kind of already mentioned that a little bit about the sort of the home equity loans that they were uh, they're, uh, buying up that really shouldn't have been that risky, uh, which is kind of funny. They're like, you know, why are they, they're sort of lambasted for being, you know, spending, you know, essentially government money kind of willy-nilly, but it didn't seem like a lot of it was that uh, risky, but there's some details of that we'll, we'll talk about. Um and that, uh, and then we'll talk about how much uh, the Federal Reserve uh, bought up all of the asset-backed securities from uh, China and Japan as well, uh, following the financial crisis. That, crisis that uh, China was heavily, heavily invested in American asset-backed securities, like like mortgages, um, pre-pandemic. And when they, when the pandemic, or not the pandemic, the financial crisis, I get my crisis is uh, uh, sorted straight here, that uh, the value of those plummeted and the Federal Reserve bought them up. So um, uh, that's a, that's a whole interesting angle there that I don't think a lot of people know about. There's, there's a lot going on there. Uh, There's a story about Acorn that we'll talk about. Um, 
that's a fun one because uh, I mean everybody thinks of that. That's like like you know why is that an economic story? Why you know that's kind of a niche story about this like nonprofit that was, well you know spending all their money on politics and why why would that play into the financial crisis? Um, but it plays into the collapse of Bear Stearns um, and um, and like the Community Re- Reinvestment Act and things like that about like the the, the government's mandates that you know uh, that uh, banks invest a certain amount of their money into low income mortgages and things like that, which you know seems like a, a great thing on the sub- on the on the surface, but was that actually happening? Um, I mean, I, well, I'll do some more speculating when we get to that episode of the podcast, but um, it's really sort of like, it seems like uh, Acorn was brought down for something that they, you know, uh, that they say they deny that, you know, they weren't giving money to pimps and prostitutes. And how could they? You need to show uh, interest rates, or not interest rates, uh, income tax forms to be able to, to get mortgages and things like that. You can't just falsify those sorts of things. Um so, but w- w- the question is, what were they doing? Uh, if, you know, they're supposedly sort of, you know, helping all of these, uh, you know, people get in, get low-income mortgages and things like that. Um, but w- w- what was actually happening? It w- maybe they were a lot just kind of spending it on uh, political activity. Well, that that's a maybe a rough sketch of a lot of different stories right there. But we'll... Um, and there's a lot of details to that. I mean, you know, Nina, there's, I don't want to say that that's the absolute, the total summation of everything, but it's sort of just to get a taste of what's coming up in the, in the upcoming podcasts. Um, hope you pay attention. Hope you uh, listen in um, and uh, enjoy. <laughs>